0: FT Weekend Food and Drink is supported by Plymouth Gin.
1: Hi listeners, welcome to the third episode of our special mini-series on food and drink. Today I am bringing you a conversation with one of the world's most influential chefs, Dan Barber. Dan is the chef and co-owner of Blue Hill in Manhattan and Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which is a three Michelin star restaurant on a farm in the Hudson River Valley in upstate New York. Dan has been a leader in farm-to-table cooking and regenerative agriculture for almost two decades. If you eat at Blue Hill at Stone Barns, they'll serve you things like their own breeds of vegetables that they grow on the farm, like a beet that's been bred to remove the earthy flavor. Are two types of spinach that were grown in two different ways. Dan has a unique philosophy around food. He believes that any conversation about food really needs to start at the seed.
2: Most people start at farm-to-table. Too late. Too late. Seed-to-table is the issue.
1: He first talked about it in his book The Third Plate all the way back in 2014, and he's still talking about it now. This is a live conversation between Dan and our arts editor, Jan Daly, in front of an audience at the US FT Weekend Festival just last month. I loved this conversation. It really stuck with me. And so I wanted to bring it to you here. Keep in mind, again, this is live, so you might hear a few bumps to the microphone. You can just ignore those. Okay, this is FT Weekend, the podcast special edition. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Here is Jan Daly and Dan Barber. Jan starts off by asking Dan about his book, The Third Plate.
0: Good morning, everybody, and a huge welcome to this festival. And I'm really delighted to be starting off with Dan Barber. Now, Dan, tell
2: us what The Third Plate is. Yeah, so The Third Plate uh, is a reaction to both the first and the second plate. The first plate is the plate that many of you know from your childhood, which is the protein-centric plate of food. It's the big mammoth steak or chicken breast or salmon steak with a smattering of vegetables and some white rice. The second plate is the plate that I set out to write about, uh, which is the farm-to-table plate. And it's the plate that has emerged over the last uh, 20 or so years as the most exciting social movement in America. And so now the plate will look like a grass-fed steak. So that's the second plate. It's a much better plate than the first plate. But what I realized in setting out to write this book is that farm-to-table wasn't much of a success, actually. That the second plate isn't going to change the food system. It is not going to democratize food. Farm-to-table, in and of itself, is a very elitist. But my, my recognition was that in the 20 years that this movement has been the most exciting social movement in America, food, big food has gotten only bigger. Uh, uh, corporate interests in food have only gotten more prevalent. And that's not the winning formula for a movement. And I wanted to create, what is it? what does a third plate look like? I'll tell you what a third plate looks like based on my cooking last night because I did a dish where I had a parsnip that was in, in the ground more than an entire year. And if you do this Correctly and in good soil, uh, and you take it out in April, you have one of the greatest pleasures in the world, which is a root vegetable that has lived the year uh, and become mature and incredibly sweet and complex. So I love to celebrate this. And so my third plate last night for our diners was a steak that we created out of the parsnip. I actually took the parsnip, and when we took it out in April out of the ground, uh, we brushed it with beef fat from our grass-fed cows, and we hung it like an aged steak, and we aged the parsnip. So got some of the water out and gave it some of that funk that we love from an aged steak. And I made a very rich, beautiful beef sauce. It's not a vegetarian dish at all. And I did a a dish of a mix of grains, barley and buckwheat and, and, and rye, and had a little wheat in there too. And so there's a new American plate, which celebrates a lot of things. Number one, deliciousness. Because people ate that parsnip steak, they didn't feel cheated. They didn't feel like I'm going vegetarian tonight or I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do one day less of steak. No, it's like this is the day that you're celebrating. You're being gluttonous. Otherwise, forget it. If it's, we're not talking about gluttony, it's gonna last about as long as this conversation. So people who weren't missing the steak, they wanted the parsnip. And I learned this over and over again. If we can create a story around the parsnip, which is really delicious, and deliver on that kind of flavor experience, I think we can change the world.
0: Wow, so the third plate looks substantially different because the balance of meat and
2: vegetables has changed. Completely. The balance of meat and vegetables is in corresponding balance of what the carrying capacity of the land around me can support, which is beef is very defensible where I am. My plate is hyper-regional, and for our farming community to survive and thrive, When I say thrive, I don't just mean economically, farmers stay in business. I mean the ecological reality of that environment actually improves, improves because of meat, improves. We just have to eat the right amount of it. And we eat too much meat, obviously. We eat too much meat. So if we base our meat, our protein consumption on the sunlight, sunlight feeds the grass, the grass feeds the animals, the animals feed us plenty of meat, but you just have to eat less of it and you have to extract the value of that meat and spread the wealth, democratize it. And what I'm saying is not a genius, uh, you know, modern chef uh, giving insight into something no one's said. This is how cuisines have operated for 10,000 years. Nobody had protein-centric plates of food. That is an American westernized colonial conception of what a plate of food is. It's actually very new. It's a couple hundred years old. So meat is a big issue. And I don't want to take off weeks where you don't, days where you don't eat meat. I want to put meat in its proper place. A cuisine is an interrelationship between the environment, and the ecology, and the food we eat. And chefs today have the opportunity to sculpt a recipe that speaks to that landscape around us. I love the way that deliciousness and taste come into your writing and cooking f- the entire- time. It doesn't last if it's not. No, Flav- is flavor is under siege. Flavor's under siege, and we, don't, we should not accept that. That's not acceptable, because when you get something that is truly delicious, like that parsnip, truly delicious, true deliciousness has to come from the right kind of agriculture and the right kind of environment. It has to. This is my life's understanding, that a truly delicious carrot had to have the right seed, and that's why we're starting with seed, which we'll get to. We have to start with seed. If you get the wrong seed, you got everything wrong. Then you've got to get that that carrot you taste. was so delicious because the farmer planted it in the right time and probably planted it in soil that was uh, well-fertilized. And by well-fertilized, it had to be organic. If it was well-fertilized, he or she probably planted something very smart before those carrots, probably a cover crop, something in another family that broke up disease cycles and created the kind of fertility and the atmosphere underground that would give that carrot and, and allow those genetics to express itself. And then that farmer... Probably pick that carrot at the right moment. And just to get into the social issue and democratization idea, you know, the the carrot on a small, well diverse farm, because that's what I just described, is probably paying workers fair market, fair wages. Probably. We have laws in this country, they're pretty tight. You're not going to get workers if you don't anyway. And so there's a, a social issue right there in eating the carrot, right there. You are directly supporting some type of economy that's fair and just. And lastly, you're eating carrot that's filled with nutrition. You cannot get that unless all of those things are, are in play. And that's why deliciousness can change the world.
0: You mentioned um, diversity, and you, among your many other things, um, founded a company called Row 7 Seeds, I gather, to make sure that the real ecological diversity of seed
2: wealth, as it were, continues to survive. Yes, you can have the best farmer, in the best soil and the best chefs in the world, but you will never elicit that flavor unless it has the genetics. Most people start at farm-to-table. Too late, too late. Seed-to-table is the issue. And right now, right now, 65% and growing of our seed supply in the world, seed supply is our food supply. So 65% of our food supply is in the hands of four companies. Four. When I wrote that book, it was nine. Today it's four, and it's going to consolidate more. That's just, you talk about consolidation, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Then you look at the, who are the four companies? Not one of them is a seed company. Not a one. They're all chemical companies. They own 65% of the world's food supply and they're chemical companies. Who allowed that to happen? That's the craziest thing. And, and how do we stand a chance uh, to uh, eat deliciously, but also eat with nutrition and also eat with democracy, democratizing flavors I started with. How could you do that when you have such consolidation with companies that are sowing seeds, which is selecting genetics, so that they make money on the chemicals, not on the seeds. I own a seed business now. I've done that for five years. I can tell you, straight shot, there is no way to make money just selling seeds. No way, absolutely not, and that's why chemical companies buy the seeds. And just like Amazon got into you through books, these chemical companies get into you with seeds. And you, as a farmer, are locked into genetics and you're locked into the chemical cocktail that is developed alongside that seed to be able to make the seed grow and become at least, at least as productive uh, as it needs to be to uh, have the farmer stay in business, sort of. But that's the game, and it's rigged.
0: So the question of how you
2: really take this to the world. I
0: mean, how many farmers can you convince and how hard is it to do that?
2: It's the market. If they have the market, they go. You know, not that long ago, I was sitting on a tractor with a uh, farmer in North Dakota. His farm was 22,000 acres uh, in North Dakota, 22,000 acres. It's like he's farming the size of Rhode Island. With one tractor, I was on one combine. And I said to him, what about farming some, rotation crops, uh, you know, besides corn and soybeans, like uh, And he said, like what? I said, well, like barley. Barley's super nutritious, very soil-supporting. Uh, it's an incredible uh, grain that we should be eating a lot more of and that farmers want to grow more. Um, and he said, I would love to grow barley. I'd love to put it in my rotations. The nearest distributor for barley uh, is 1,800 miles away from here. There is no longer barley grown in this country if it's not grown for beer or malting or pig food. Just imagine that, a crop that has to be, if you balance out the ecological benefits of growing barley in a rotation, corn and soybeans or anything, and health benefits, just just pound for pound, maybe the most nutritious grain you can eat, and there is 0.0 of it bred for human consumption. You go to Whole Foods, you go into the bin, you take the barley, that was meant for a pig, and it was diverted from a pig to you. And it's organic premium. No, no joke, that's serious. So I've been working for five years with a barley breeder, and we're working on a barley that's just selected uh, for deliciousness.
1: Hi, Lila here. At this point in the talk, Dan took a few questions from the audience. Here's the first one. Um, a bit of a funny intro, but I was born in Dutchess County, Baxter Brothers Hospital, Parents are Nigerian. So we used to have to go to New York City, Bronx Terminal Market to get uh, sort of vegetables from Nigeria and seeds. Full circle, 2021 in January, you had a Nigerian chef Shola Olun- Olunloyo yeah. in residency. So, what are you learning from these chefs from all around the world who are from places where?
2: where Can I just tell you, you're you're talking about Shola and Nigerian cuisine, and my hair is standing up in my arms because it's just the, it was the most thrilling six weeks I've had as a chef. Um, in part because I was so embarrassed how little I knew about West African foodways and culture. And um, it was just mortifying. And, and, but, and yet I just dug into it and learned more about food in those six weeks uh, than I ever have. I If I had one take, well, first of all, flavor was just everywhere. And you're right about seeds, by the way. I mean, everything that's going on in Africa is that actually there is a really diverse seed community, a community of genetic seeds that are super local, super hyper local. And and, and have until very recently just been exchanged. Um, that's what seeds were, you know, up until a hundred years ago. And it still exists. It still exists in many, many parts of Africa. It's the, the exchange of seeds is free. You don't, the, the idea of selling seeds is so new. It's weird. 1917 was the first seed company in the U.S. First seed company, first organized company to make money to sell seeds. Well, it's only been a hundred years before that. You gave seed away. That was the first lesson. Second lesson was, was flavor. I was just in love with everything. Third was, Nigerian food was what I, the biggest takeaway was there was no difference between food and medicine, between cooks and doctors, between everyday cooking and, and healthfulness. Same thing. Food, food, when you say food is medicine, literally was medicine. There was not, there was, everything was revolved around food and it was preventative. We can do a lot through food and prevent disease, especially long-term uh, disease, which, which, you know, is, there's no silver bullet. There's good diets and, and a healthy lifestyle. And then the last thing um, was my sense of American cooking. Like, how much of American cooking came from enslaved people? Uh, Seeds, I, And I just did not know that. I did not understand it. And much of what happened in the South was extraction, tobacco and, and rice and, and cotton and wheat. Wheat was huge. And when the soils failed... Everyone dropped their plow and moved west. The people who stayed were plantation owners. And the people who brought back soil fertility, who literally saved food for the South, were enslaved people. And they did it through seeds and they did it through culinary know-how what you're what we're talking about. Uh, and it was the launch of Southern cuisine. That's what we that's what it is.
0: What are your thoughts on how we can drive more investment into rural
2: communities to boost ag, ag innovation and help? Grow stronger rural communities across America. Yeah, I think we have to have demand for uh, uh, differentiated crops. Uh, di- demand for differentiated crops uh, equals demand for labor and economies. What we've, what has been the 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 the, the hollowing out of the Midwest has been the corporatization of food. But I will tell you that if we don't start with seed, we will not get there because seed determines everything. And if we want jobs and thriving rural communities, we need differentiated food. And we need differentiated food through the kind of seeds that we all need to advocate for. Uh, And it's our economic well-being is embedded in the genetics in that seed as distilled and as simplistic as that, I believe it to be true. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, everybody.
1: That's the show. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the life and arts podcast of the Financial Times. This was the third episode of our special mini series about food and drink. I've dropped some relevant links about Dan and his work in the show notes. You will also find a special discount there in the show notes for a subscription to the FT. That's also at ft.com slash weekend podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. You can also say hi on social media. We are on Twitter at ftweekendpod, Pod, and I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I spend most of my social media time talking to all of you about culture stuff on Instagram. This episode was produced by the great Zach St. Louis, executive produced by Topher Forges, and sound engineered by Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Have a wonderful week, and we'll find each other again this weekend.